Chapter Twenty Two of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Two, The Thin-Faced Stranger. I pretended not to notice him as I pushed past him and presently returned with water. Lady Fitzgram, Connie Stapleton, and several others also clamored for water to moisten their parched lips and when I had attended to Dulcie I gave them some. For the next two hours everything was confusion. All the passengers had been severely shaken, and some were seriously hurt, but fortunately not one had been killed. Our extraordinary escape I shall always attribute to the fact that we traveled in a Pullman, a car that has most wonderful stability. A large crowd had assembled at Garris de Lazare to witness the arrival of the special with the passengers who had traveled in our ill-fated train. Now that I had collected my scattered thoughts, once more I was resolved at the earliest possible moment to inform Lady Fitzgram of the discovery I had made, for I had come to the firm conclusion that some, at any rate, of the jewelry that bag contained must be hers some of the jewelry which had been stolen on board the boat. Upon our arrival at the Continental I discovered that Gastrell and Connie Stapleton's friends numbered no less than twelve, without counting Lady Fitzgram or myself, so that in all we were sixteen. Of the people I had met before, whom I believed to be members of the gang, only Jasmine Gastrell was absent. What most puzzled me was what the reason could be they had all come to Paris. Did the London police suspect them, or were they fleeing from justice in consequence? That, I decided, seemed hardly likely. Could they be contemplating some coup on the continent, or had they come over to prepare with greater security some fresh gigantic robbery in England? That seemed far more probable, and just then I remembered that in less than a fortnight the coming-of-age festivities of Lord Cranmere's son would begin, February the 28th. What complicated matters to some extent was that I had no means of ascertaining, beyond doubt, which members of this large party were actually members of the gang I now knew to exist, and which, if any, besides Dulcie, Lady Fitzgram, and myself, also, I fancied, the man named Wollaston were honest folk, some of them possibly dupes. Lady Fitzgram I knew well by name and repute, and there could be no possibility of her being mixed up in criminal or even shady transactions. That the robbery of her famous jewels by whomsoever it had been committed had been premeditated and carefully planned there seemed hardly room to doubt. Next day all the Paris newspapers contained reports of the suicide, as they evidently all believed it to have been, and of the robbery on board the boat. The usual theories, many of them so far-fetched as to be almost fantastic, were advanced, and all kinds of wild suggestions were made to account for the dead man's having been disguised. Not until three days later was the sensational announcement made in the newspapers that he had proved to be George Preston, the famous English detective who had retired upon pension only the year before. We had been four days in Paris, and nothing in the least suspicious had occurred. I had been unable to tell Lady Fitzgram of my suspicions regarding the whereabouts of her stolen jewels, for she had not dined at the Continental, nor had I seen her after our train had reached Paris, or even on the train after the accident. 
the hotel manager was under the impression i had discovered while conversing with him that we had all met by accident either in the train or on the boat as the accommodation needed had been telegraphed for from dieppe he was also quite convinced this i gathered at the same time that our party consisted of people of considerable distinction leaders of london society an impression no doubt strengthened by the almost reckless extravagance of every member of the party the robbery and the supposed suicide on board the boat were beginning to be less talked about it was the evening of our fourth day in paris and i had just finished dressing for dinner when somebody knocked i called come in and a man entered without speaking he shut the door behind him turned the key in the lock and came across to me he was tall and thin a rather ascetic-looking individual of middle age, with small intelligent eyes set far back in his head, bushy brows, and a clean-shaven face, clearly an American. He stood looking at me for a minute or two, and then said, "'Mr. Barrington, I think.' I started, for my make-up was perfect still, and I firmly believed that none had penetrated my disguise. Before I could answer, the stranger continued, you have no need to be alarmed, Mr. Barrington. I am connected with the Paris Sûreté, and George Preston was a colleague and an intimate friend of mine. We had been in communication for some time before his death, and I knew of his disguise. He had given me details of his line of action in connection with the people you are with, for he knew that impersonating Alphonse Furneaux and associating himself so closely with this group of criminals he ran a grave risk. Still, he went on, speaking smoothly and very rapidly, I believe this tragedy would not have occurred, for that he was murdered I feel certain, though I have no proof, had the real Fourneau not succeeded in making good his escape from the room where Preston had confined him in his own house, a room where he had more than once kept men under lock and key when he wanted them out of the way for a while. As the stranger stopped speaking, he produced from his pocket a card with a portrait of himself upon it and the autograph signature of the prefect of police. "'Well,' I said, feeling considerably relieved, "'what have you come to see me about?' "'Your life is in danger,' he answered bluntly, "'in great danger. Alphonse Furneaux has penetrated your disguise, and I have every reason to believe that he has betrayed your identity to the rest of the gang.' If that is so, you can hardly escape their vengeance unless you leave here at once, under my protection, and return to London. Even there you will need to be extremely careful. Please prepare to come now. It may already be too late. I can't do that, I answered firmly, facing him. Miss Challoner, the daughter of Sir Roland Challoner, has unwittingly become mixed up with these people. She suspects nothing, and as yet I have been unable to warn her of the grave risks she runs by remaining with them. It is solely on her account that I am here. I must remain by her at all costs to protect her, and to warn her as soon as possible. "'You can safely leave that to me, Mr. Barrington,' the stranger answered with a keen glance. "'If you stay here another night, I won't be responsible for your safety. Indeed, I don't consider that I am responsible for it now.' quick please pack your things impossible i replied doggedly you don't understand the situation mr albury victor albury you don't understand the situation mr albury i am engaged to be married to miss challoner 
and I can't at any cost desert her at such a time. She has struck up an extraordinary friendship with Mrs. Stapleton, who is staying in this hotel and is mixed up with the gang, and I want to watch their movements while retaining my disguise. But of what use is your disguise? Albury cut in quickly. Now that, as I told you, these scoundrels are aware of your identity, or will be very soon. You have no idea, Mr. Barrington, of the class of criminal you have to deal with. These men and women have so much money, and are so presentable and plausible, also so extremely clever, that you would have the greatest difficulty in inducing any ordinary people to believe they are not rich folk of good social standing, let alone that they are criminals. If you insist upon remaining here, it will be nothing less than madness. And yet I insist, I said. The stranger shrugged his shoulders. Then he sat down, asked if he might light a cigarette, and for a minute or so remained wrapped in thought. "'Supposing that I could induce Miss Challoner to come away,' he said suddenly, "'would you come then?' "'Of course I should,' I answered. "'I have told you it is only because she is here that I remain here.' Albury rose abruptly and tossed his half-smoked cigarette into the grate. "'Wait here until I return,' he said. He unlocked the door and went out of the room. I heard his footsteps grow fainter and fainter as he went along the corridor. At the end of a quarter of an hour, as he did not return, I went out into the passage, locked the door of my room behind me, and walked slowly in the direction Albury had gone. I knew the number of Dulcie's room to be eighty-seven. It adjoined the bedroom occupied by Connie Stapleton, which opened into a private sitting-room. This I had ascertained from one of the hotel quarters. As I reached the door of the sitting-room I heard voices, a man's voice and the voices of two women. The man was Albury. The women who both spoke at once were certainly Connie Stapleton and Dulcie. They were in the room, and by their tones I judged them to be wrangling with Albury. I knocked boldly. Summoned to enter by Connie Stapleton, I walked straight in and faced them. At once the wrangling ceased. There was a look in Connie Stapleton's eyes that I had never seen there before. Hitherto I had seen only her attractive side. When I had conversed with her she had always seemed most charming, intelligent, witty, amusing. Now her eyes had in them a cold, steely glitter. "'What do you want, Michael Barrington?' she asked icily. "'Don't you think it's time you took off that disguise?' The sound of a little gasp diverted my attention. I turned and my gaze met Dulcie's. Her expression betrayed fear. "'Yes, I am Michael Barrington,' I said quietly speaking now in my natural voice, and looking Connie Stapleton full in the eyes. As you have discovered my identity, you probably know why I am disguised, just as you most likely know why George Preston was disguised when you or some of your gang strangled him on board the boat. Connie Stapleton's eyes seemed gradually to resemble a snake's. Her lips were tightly closed. Her face was livid. For some moments she stood there glaring at me, then she spoke again. "'This man,' she said, indicating Albury, "'has been speaking of you. He tells me that he has advised you to return to England, and I have told him it is now too late. You won't see England again, Mr. Barrington. I tell you that quite openly before this police officer, whom I have known for many years. I do so with impunity, because he knows that if he betrays me I can reveal something I know about him.' 
and should do so at once. I was about to speak when my gaze again met Dulcie's. She had turned suddenly pale. Now she glanced apprehensively first at her friend, then at me, and then at the American detective Albury. Deep perplexity as well as fear was in her eyes. "'Do you tell me what it all means?' she implored, looking up at me. For the first time for many days she seemed to need my help. "'So many things have puzzled me during the past days. I have seen so much and heard so much that I can't understand.' She turned to Mrs. Stapleton. "'Connie!' she cried out impetuously. "'Why have you suddenly changed? Why have you turned against me? What have I done or said that has given you offence?' Before Mrs. Stapleton had time to answer, I spoke. "'Dulcie,' I exclaimed, "'I will say now what I have wanted to for days to tell you, though I have not had a chance of doing so, and I knew that if I wrote a letter you would show it to this woman who would invent some plausible story to make you disbelieve me. Now listen. This woman is not what you believe her to be. In her presence I tell you that she is an adventuress of an odious description.' and that in becoming friendly with you, also in becoming engaged to your father, she has acted from the base's motives. Dulcie, you must leave here at once and come away with me. I saw an extraordinary look of repugnance creep into Dulcie's eyes as she cast a half-frightened glance at Connie Stapleton, seated staring at her with an unconcealed sneer. Connie, she said bitterly, oh, Connie, don't look at me like that. The woman laughed. "'Can't you see I have no further use for you, you little fool?' she retorted harshly. "'Go with him. Go with your lover. Return to your doddering old father. If you can get to him, who had the amazing effrontery to ask me to become his wife, I who am young enough to be his granddaughter.' At that instant I caught the sound of a door being closed carefully. Something prompted me to step out into the passage and I came face to face with Gastrell, who had evidently just left Connie Stapleton's other room, and so must have overheard our conversation, also whatever conversation with Albury she might have had before I entered. For some moments we stood looking at each other without speaking. He appeared to be calm and wholly unconcerned. "'Do you want me for something?' he asked suddenly. "'No,' I answered. "'I have been to see Mrs. Stapleton.' that's rather obvious, as you have this instant left a room. Is there anything she can do for you? Do for me? Yes. He came slowly up to me, then speaking into my face, he said in a hard undertone, You have tried to spy upon us and failed. Your companion, George Preston, spied upon us. He is dead. By this time tomorrow. Without another word, he went past me down the corridor. He turned the corner at the end, and a moment later I heard the iron gates of the lift shut with a clatter and the lift descending. Just then it was that Dulcie rushed out into the corridor. Catching sight of me she sprang forward and clung to me, trembling. "'Oh, Mike, Mike!' she cried piteously. "'I am so terrified. I have just heard such dreadful things. Mike, your life is in danger. You must get away from here at once.' "'That's what I am going to do,' I said with an assumption of calmness I was far from feeling. And you must come with me, my darling. What about your clothes and things? Can you get them packed quickly? Still clinging to me, she hesitated. I, I'm afraid to go back into that room, she exclaimed at last. Connie has suddenly turned upon me. I can't believe she can't bear me any more. 
"'I'm glad to hear that,' I answered, intensely relieved at last. "'Ah, if only that woman had turned upon her long ago,' I thought, "'how much better it would have been for Dulcie.' "'But surely,' I said, "'you can go into your own room to pack your things.' This proposition evidently troubled her. "'No,' she said after an instant's pause, "'Doris Lorimer is in my room.' "'And what if she is? She can't prevent your packing your own things?' "'She can, and she will. Oh, Mike,' she continued bitterly, "'you don't know, you can't understand. Doris Lorimer is under Connie's control just as I have been. Connie seems to have some extraordinary power over her. She does everything Connie tells her to, and Connie has told her not to let me go, to retain my belongings if I attempt to leave.' "'But a moment ago Mrs. Stapleton told you to go. She said she had done with you. I heard her myself.' "'She doesn't mean it. I am terrified of her now, Mike. I want to get away from her, but I daren't. If I go, something awful will happen to me. I know it will.' Though I had long suspected it, only now did I realize the fearful hold that this woman had obtained over Dulcie, who seemed hardly able any longer to exercise her will. This I knew must in a measure be the result of the woman having hypnotized her. My mind was made up in a moment. "'Dulcie!' I exclaimed firmly. "'You are coming with me to-night, you understand? To-night. Whether you take your things or not is not of a consequence. I'll see to everything. Don't return to your room. Don't see Mrs. Stapleton again. Come with me now.' Albury appeared in the passage. Seeing us, he approached. "'Go at once, Mr. Barrington,' he said in a tone of authority. "'It is even more serious than I thought. You haven't a moment to lose.' "'I am taking Miss Challoner with me,' I replied. "'I refuse to leave her here.' He glanced at each of us in turn. "'Must you?' he said. "'Why not leave Miss Challoner to me? I will answer for her safety. I am too well known in Paris even for reckless people such as we have to deal with now to attempt to oppose me or to do me an injury.' "'Either Miss Challoner comes with me, or I remain,' I replied stubbornly. Something seemed suddenly to have set on my mettle. "'But how is it, Mr. Albury,' I added quickly, "'that if these people know you are connected with the police, and you know as much about them as you appear to do, you can't at once have them arrested?' "'We require circumstantial evidence,' he answered, "'definite evidence of some kind which at present we haven't got.' In cases such as this we can't arrest on suspicion. Much of my information about these people comes from George Preston. People of this description are extremely difficult to arrest, because in spite of what is practically known about them, nothing against them can be proved. That is where their cleverness comes in. No matter what they do, they keep out of reach of the law. But come, Mr. Barrington, I must get you away at once. No, don't return to your room as I was moving in that direction. Come downstairs at once and bring Miss Challoner with you. We won't go by the lift if you don't mind. Dulcie had an evening wrap over her arm. Taking it from her I wrapped it about her shoulders, then slipped on the thin overcoat I had with me. Quickly we followed Albury to the end of the corridor. We were about to descend the stairs when an unexpected sight arrested our attention. End of chapter 22 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.